Um, how as Christians, how, how do we navigate these opinionated angry times, <laughs> very polarized? Um, and basically in the wake of this overwhelming polarization of nearly everything uh, in America today, um, this question is being asked very defensively by a lot of people. What does love require of me? And they're asking it defensively because there is no end of people telling other people what they should be about and what they shouldn't be about if they have love. Right? Ton, tons of opinions, right? If you really, really love people, right, you'll protect women's rights. And then the other crowd is saying, well, if you really, really, really love people, you'll protect unborn babies. And if you really, really, really love people, you'd be a Democrat. But if you really, really, really love people, you'd be a Republican. If you really love people, you would support Black Lives Matter if you were really a Christian, you would support Blue Lives Matter. And, and, it, and it goes on and on and on. Do you, you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Do you, have you been going to church? Have you not been going to church? Or you're a good Christian, you're not a good Christian. Are you a faker? You're wrong. I mean, there's just so many angry, angry opinions. And the crazy thing about all this is everybody is quoting Scripture. I've never seen so many people quote Scripture that I would have assumed. I don't know, this is really an ugly mean thing to say, but I wouldn't have assumed that they even knew Scripture. But they do. They're quoting it left and right, right, to, to, to back up what they want to tell us what they want us to believe. Really, and preachers, we're the worst. I, I, I get that, right? That's what we do. That's our job. We tell people how to live their lives. <laughs> but listen, in this situation, I don't want you to tell me what love requires of you. You don't need to ask anybody what love requires of you. You don't need to tell anybody what love requires of them. You don't need to wait for anybody to tell you what love requires of you. See, that's going backwards. That's going backwards to what I'm just going to call the, the, the temple model, right? The temple system. This was the old temple, the Old Testament system. And it was really basically four things. There were sacred places. And in, in all world religions, this is, this is true of uh, the temple model, right? The Greeks had it. The Romans had it. The Persians had it. I mean, everybody, everybody had this, this temple model, Right? And it was filled with, number one, sacred places. This usually had a cave or a spring or something where somebody sprung from a hole and gave birth to the world or you know, something like that. It was usually on a mountaintop or, or overlooking the ocean on some incredible, incredible naturistic spot right? where, where you would naturally find God, right? Um, and these sacred places are, 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 are filled with sacred texts, right? Sacred books are usually chained to something. More often than not, nobody's allowed to look at the sacred texts, except sacred men and women. And these sacred men and women, with their sacred texts and their sacred places, they tell people what to do and what not to do. And the followers, they reign. Some of them are sincere. Some of them become superstitious. And some of them are just scared, right, of these sacred men and women with sacred texts in sacred places. See, but then Jesus showed up, and the arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. And this wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for everybody on the earth, right? This wasn't Judaism 2.0, right? This was in something entirely new. And basically, at each church that Paul started as he traveled around the Mediterranean world, and you can kind of read a travel log of his travels. It's called the book of Acts, right? You find out just about everything he did in that book. And as he would travel around, he would start these little gatherings, these, these Jesus gatherings of people. Um, and, and his job basically was to convince them to drop the old temple system and to adopt the new model that Jesus 
was offering. But again, there were Judaizers in both cities and in basically all the cities that Paul went to. And what these guys were doing is they had accepted Christ, but they were also very, very, very tied to their heritage and their traditions, right? The way things had always been done, the law. Um, and so they were basically coming around behind Paul and said, hey, Paul didn't tell you everything. You know, they'd go to Ephesus and they'd go to, go to churches in Galatia and they'd go to different churches. They'd say, hey, Paul didn't tell you everything. If you were wise, right, you would... I think it would be a good idea if you hold on to both systems, right? Hold on to the law, but then, but you love Jesus and that's all good and fine, but just to be safe, kind of hold on to both. Hold on to the law and to this, this Jesus and everything that Jesus is telling us about. But here's how Paul describes the cosmic shift that occurs with the arrival of Jesus. This is in Galatians chapter 4. We read it just a few minutes ago. This is verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, meaning basically that he wasn't born a superhero, wasn't born God, with God powers, he was born human, just like us, born of women. Um, born under the law, meaning basically he wasn't super rich, super powerful in, in a way that he could act like he was superhuman or, you know, super powerful. Uh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, Paul had been arguing that the purpose of the law was, was really as a, as a filler for, and I'm going to say this very carefully, for a, an immature Israel, or even us, an immature us, um, not emotionally or mentally or spiritually ready for the freedom of adulthood, where rules are followed out of choice rather than out of coercion. And that's basically what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to, gave us, to give us freedom um, to follow really the spirit of the law rather than the, the letter of the law like a child needs to do while a child is being trained up. And Jesus is basically offering to remove the spiritual training wheels, which was the law, um, without risk of failure, right? I'll, I'll cover you if you fall off, right? If you skin your knees, no worries, right? No worries at all. So in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is strongly, as you're going to find out in just a moment, strongly persuading them that in light of what Jesus offers, and we learned several weeks ago that the yoke or the burden of Christ is amazingly simple, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. So Paul is telling the Galatians, look, in light of what Jesus offers, if you go back to trying to obey all 630 plus aspects of the law, which was the yoke or the burden of the Pharisees, well, that's comparable to, for example, a 21-year-old rejecting a billion-dollar trust fund and the adulthood that goes with it simply because, well, well, that would be too much trouble and worry, right? I just want to let mommy and daddy make all my decisions for me. I don't want to adult. This is what Paul is telling the Galatians, right? They're, like, you guys are going back to being children, right? You, you were running such a good race. Why are you now going backwards, back to childish Control, right? Here's what Jesus was offering. Here's the Jesus model, right? It was a brand new covenant, a new arrangement between us and God, a new approach to life. See, under the old covenant, it was, um, it was really two people coming in an agreement, like um, we'll obey and you'll bless or we'll disobey and you'll curse, right? It was a two-party agreement. But the new covenant, it's not based on two parties agreeing to keep their... They're part of the bargain. It's, it was one person who made a promise. God made a promise. 
And it's totally dependent on him. It's not dependent on us. A new covenant based on a promise, not on a, look, I'll, I'll try my best and, you know. No, it's a promise. It's, I, even if you don't do your best, I got you covered. I promise. A new command, right? This one takes precedent over all 630 others, right? You need to know about them to know what's right or wrong, but you will no longer be judged by whether you do them exactly anymore. You will be judged just by the love you have. One new command, a new ethic, love, and not legal love, right? Like do no harm, but love like I've loved you sacrificially, extravagantly. And then a new movement, right? Ecclesia. This idea, a movement of people, an assembly or a congregation, right? Not a, not a temple or a building. Somehow we got, we got confused there just a little bit. The Jesus model isn't a knockoff, it's not a rewrite, it's not an improved model, it's something completely and radically different and new. The temple model was built around those that, a standard that only the elite could keep, right, that made them incredibly self-righteous. But Jesus came along and he raised the standard so that nobody could meet it, right? He levels the playing field and then offered himself as a sacrifice for all of us who simply couldn't meet his incredibly high standard. The temple model required followers to come to the temple to make peace with God. All that did was make us a bunch of hypocrites. Look at me at temple. Look how much I give. Look how much I pray. Look how loudly I pray. Basically, Jesus said, forget that. I want you to go and you want you to make peace with your neighbor. God can wait. That's what religion is all about. And the old temple model was nation-specific. But with Christ, it's for all peoples in all places. Any sacred place that you can think of, including this incredibly beautiful, beautiful building that's been sanctified for holy purposes, including this building, there is no single building or place on earth that, that's more valuable to our Heavenly Father than you and the person sitting next to you. I know a lot of people have trouble with that. They, they, they love this building. I love this building. Don't get me wrong. But my faith isn't about this building. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they flocked to Jesus, right? They, he, they loved his message, right? Because he included everybody. It wasn't a haves and a have not. So here's what happened. Here's where everything went to, began to go wrong. They attempted to assimilate Jesus into the temple model, right? Jesus was a good Jewish boy. The Jesus movement seemed to be just an extension of the faith that Jesus grew up with and had been a part of his people for so long, just kind of merged and blended kind of thing. But then along came Paul to the other church's rescue. Saul of Tarsus, he, he was a Pharisee, like he was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's one of the ones who could actually keep all 630-some-odd laws. I mean, he pulled it off. You know, like he was the best of the best. But then Jesus got a hold of him, right? After he attempted to wipe out the whole movement, Jesus got a hold of him. And being the consummate insider, Paul knew instinctively that the old system, which he was an expert in, it did not mesh with the Jesus model. The two just simply didn't work together. Either one was completely true and the other one was completely false or the other way around. Both of them could not be true simultaneously. You could not be solved, uh, saved by the law and saved by faith. That, that, that was impossible. And Paul knew this, even though the people were trying to kind of do both. 
He knew how dangerous the mixing could be. It would dilute, it would denude, and it would pollute the message of Jesus Christ. Listen, being a Jew, right, it's not that big a deal for most people who, right, they wanted to be a Christian. So a lot of folks, okay, I'll be a Jew. But for the men, it was a big deal. It required some surgery. I'm not going to go into any detail right now, but, right, the men were like, whoa, 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 can I become a Christian without being a Jew? Please. So let's walk through the passages I've got here in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Because it's a big deal to Paul if we mix these two things, right? The old temple model and the Jesus model. Here's what he said. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let me kind of paraphrase that for you. It is for an adult, mature, grown-up freedom that Christ has set us free from the rule and authority-driven world of the law and childhood. Is that all right if I add in a few of those words there? It is for an adult, mature, grown-up freedom that Christ has set us free from the rule and authority-driven world of childhood and the law. Right? You want to run back to mama, but that's not going to help you in the long run. Cut the apron strings, it's time to adult. If your version of Christianity doesn't make you feel like a grown-up adult man or a grown-up adult woman, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. If you're sitting around in your form of Christianity waiting for some authority figure to punish you, to tell you did wrong, to that's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus offered. That was the old model. Paul continues, verse 2, chapter 5. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised or if you let yourself fall under anybody else's rule-keeping systems, right? You got to do this to be a Christian. You got to do this if you really love people. If you really love people, you would sign up here. If you're really a Christian, all those kind of rule-keeping systems, if you let yourselves be swayed by them, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Paul isn't against circumcision. All his friends were circumcised. Paul was. Many of you are. Raise your hand if you're... No, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. It simply represented... Circumcision simply represented the old covenant, right? It was, it was basically a, an agreement between the Jewish people and God. It made them his special people for a special purpose in time. It was for the Jewish people as a sign of the covenant. So, again, Paul's not against circumcision necessarily. He's against the system under which it represents. I think I said that okay. Paul continues, verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law, right? So they were simply trying to merge the two, and that was totally understandable. And like, Paul, what's the big deal? But Paul's saying, look, if you think you can take one aspect of the old covenant and enjoy all the benefits of the rest of the old covenant, you're wrong. That's not the way it was set up. Either you follow every single bit of it, and if you even fail in one, all of it's for naught, you failed at everything. It's a pass-fail. You don't get graded on a curve. You don't get a percentage. You miss one, you fail. All of them. See, they thought that they could, like, mix the two, and Christ would cover the ones, the, the, the 629 that they couldn't follow. Well, Christ will cover those 629. I'll cover the one. Like, no, Paul's like, no, you can't do that. It's not possible. You can't do that. It's not the way the old covenant was set up. Paul continues, verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Imagine wanting to get me and my wife, let's say, for example, a gift certificate to a local restaurant. Let's just make it an even $100. 
So you're going to give me a $100 gift certificate. And, and then let's just pretend that I say at that moment, hey, hey, no, wait, wait, wait. How about if I pay you for it? I'll give you $25 for it. At that point, it's no longer a gift card. It's now a discount card. Right? I took the gift part out of it by offering to pay what you wanted to give to my wife and I. Grace says that you will struggle to measure up, but I love you anyway, and I'm going to make a way for you because I love you. The moment you try to earn it, right, you take the gift out of the equation. Grace is a gift, right? The moment you try to bargain with God, you fall from grace, just like what Paul said, right? You squander the gift. Verse 5, for through the Spirit we eagerly, eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. We don't wait for our own righteousness because that will never happen, right? We can wait and wait and wait and wait until we become righteous enough. And Paul's saying, look, it's not going to work. You'll never get there. Until they could claim the righteousness of Jesus as their own, then life was conferred by faith expressed in Abraham, not by the law given by Moses. Right? The law is just kind of to keep us all in line until Jesus comes along and fulfills the law because we're really bad at it. <laughs> in fact, this passage right here, this, this whole idea that we're eagerly awaiting by faith, not by works, not by anything else, but by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. This passage is really an answer to one that Paul asked uh, a couple chapters early in chapter 3. I'm going to go back now. You've got to follow along. Hold on now. Chapter 3, verse 5, it says, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard, the gospel message? Are you a believer because of which party you belong to or which side or which argument you fall on or are you a believer based on the personhood of Jesus Christ? And then in verses 10 through 12, it says this, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. <laughs> As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And in the book of the law, it was Abraham's faith, not adherence to the law, that gave life. That's basically what Paul's saying. And he continues. I'm going to jump down to verse 11. It says, clearly no one who relies on the, wall is on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, as it is written. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. And by extension, by rejecting salvation by faith, the one who can't live by these things will also die by them. You can try to live by them. You will fail. Therefore, you will die by them. And here's the final nail in the coffin of Right? If you're really a Christian, then you would agree with my rule-keeping system and, and do everything that, in my opinion, a good Christian should do. Right? Here's God's answer to anyone who thinks a political party or a politician or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or opening up church or not opening up church is the key to life or the mark of a true Christian. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, it says this. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? No. Obviously, they're not at odds with one another. They both had their place in time, but they can't work together. Absolutely not, Paul says, for if a law had been given that could impart life, right? If there had been a politician or if there had been something that would come down by humanity that could make us holy and righteous, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. 
but it hasn't happened yet, has it? Nobody's become righteous by keeping the law because we simply can't do it. Right? If going to church, tithing, etc., could have saved anyone, why did Jesus have to die? Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Whether you're the best rule keeper or the worst rule keeper, doesn't matter in light of Jesus, right? The best of my chosen people is equal to, in my eyes, to the worst of the Gentiles, right? My gift is free. You don't have to earn it. In fact, as your homework, go dig into chapters 3 and 4 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. I mean, he goes to great lengths just to, just to tell us how wide this gospel net is being drawn, right? <laughs> it's incredibly wide where the Jewish people thought it was, right? Paul's like, no, no, right? In Christ Jesus, it's huge. It's huge. He continues, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Because faith expressing itself through rule-keeping is an oxymoron, right? You all get that, right? Rule-keeping is not faith. It, it, they, don't, they don't go hand, they just, they just don't play well together. The whole Bible can be brought to bear on this single verse. And the temple model is like, God, how am I doing, right? Did you see that? Did you see that? Pretty good, huh? huh? But with the Jesus model, you're in. You're in. Stop Stop looking up and like, you know, God, are you, are you, are you okay with what I'm doing? Are you, are you good? Are you right? Just stop. Stop looking up. Stop, start, start looking around. Start looking around. The temple model is you-centered. See, and that's the problem. And if the temple model or the model that you follow, if it's you-centered, then there's only really one question that you're asking yourselves. What must I do? What must I believe to make things right and keep things right between God and I? This is the immature Christian's entire religious point of view. Me, 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 me. Focus on me. For some of us, this is the why we give. This is why we serve, why we obey. Maybe for some people, why we even are watching this broadcast in the first place. <laughs> right? I need to get back to church and not my neighbor needs me to get back to church. And being me-centered, everything revolves around my list of rules and my list of regulations, the ones I choose to follow, right? Which means we ask kind of an expanded question. What exactly must I do or believe to make things right and keep things right between God and I? So always looking for a scriptural out, right? The problem with rules and regulations, it always leads to loophole thinking, right? Always leads to bargaining and negotiations with God, Right? To the exception of the rule type thinking. This is why we ask, like, how close can I get to sin without making God angry instead of how close can I get to God's glory? You notice those are two radically separate questions. We like how far? How can I get what I want without losing God's favor or worse, making them mad? This just kind of goes on in our minds. That's, that's the way a child thinks who's afraid of a parent. Rules and regulations, they also produce escape clauses, right, which produces hypocrites. It's the reason why so many people leave the church, right? The Sunday life of so many people is so radically different than the other six days of the week. 
See, as long as we sprinkle just a little bit of this temple thinking into our Jesus thinking, we revert back to I, I, I. What must I do? What exactly do I got to do? A subtle form of self-centered religion that Jesus invites us just to lay down, to abandon. Because the Jesus model isn't focused on you. It's focused on the you beside you. The Trump-loving Republican the Biden-loving Democrat sitting next to you. I don't know if you allowed them in your home. It's the skinhead living down the street, right? It's the gangbanger and the hard stairs as you drive by. It's that family with seven obnoxious, rude kids in the neighborhood, terrorizing the neighborhood, right? It's the teenage party palace that's not nearly enough down the road from your house. This is what the Jesus model is focused on. Not you. Paul now gets really angry. <laughs> he says this. I'm going to, two separate verses, 7 and 12. says, you were running a great race, right? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? As for those agitators who, who cut in on you, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So, so this is like, right, it goes for most of us. But in this part of the world, there was a Sibali, the, the, the god of, of, of these people. And, and if you worship this god in order to prove yourself that you really, really, really loved him, you did things to yourself, right? You castrated yourself, proving, I, I, honestly, I, I, I do love you. And Christ says, no, just, just love your neighbor. Don't, don't, don't. Don't do that. Just love your neighbor. <laughs> then he turns his anger, right, from the Judaizers to the danger of their message of turning back to the old covenant. He says this in verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. But basically because of the nature of yeast and how it works through a whole pile of dough, the Jewish people always considered yeast or, or leaven, right, as evil, right, the bad apple. You, that's kind of our English translation of that. Bad, bad apple ruins the whole barrel, right? trying to earn your way just a little, little, little tiny bit. Watch me, Lord. Look how good I'm doing, right? Just any part of the old temple model, no how small, will ruin it for you and for everybody else. Paul knew this. Because here's what happens when you try to combine the two. Leaders would become self-righteous. Right? I'm the man with the book. You don't got the book because you're not good enough. Hey, but I can square things with God for you, right? Because I've got the book. And if I don't do right, I'll pretend to do right, or you will fire me. So it's just self-righteous leaders. Paul knew it would also create followers who would be hypocrites. Right? We've got to dumb things down be, until I can live with it, or it won't bother my conscience. Right? Texts would be manipulated. Hey, I can make the text say anything I want, and, and a lot of you would believe me. People would be mistreated. Have you ever had somebody tell you, how to love and how not to love, right? Well, you shouldn't be down there with those people. What are you thinking? Paul concludes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And I find this fascinating in the Gospels, we've got two, and here Paul kind of puts them, kind of puts the weight on the second one. 
One command, love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't some ooey-gooey, no rules kind of thing because that's not love. See, the Jesus model is lots less complicated than the old model, the temple model, right? There's only two rules. It's love God and love your neighbor, right? Incredibly, incredibly simple, but it's far more demanding, far more demanding. At the center of the Christian faith is a man who claimed to be uniquely of God, to be God, who died in one of the most violent, painful manners ever thought up by humanity. This is how demanding the Jesus model is. Listen, there's a lot of easy places to hide with a temple model approach to Christianity. I mean, you can find loopholes and escape clauses all day long. Jesus never said that, right? He was only exaggerating, hyperbole. Paul only implied that. John and the other gospel writers seem to be saying that, but they, they don't really mean that extreme. They're just giving it as an example. Loopholes, escape clauses all over the place. You see, the fact of the matter is there's a little bit of temple model in all of us. And in the temple model, we wait for sacred people with sacred books and sacred places to tell us what's sacred and what's not sacred. Christ came to free you from those people. Don't enslave yourself to their rule-keeping systems, their opinions on what love is and what love isn't. Christ has already shown you this. We don't need any more examples. Or, or if left to ourselves, without Jesus, we use loopholes and escape clauses to justify what we want to do and what we don't want to do and we want, want what we want our neighbor to do and what we don't want our neighbor to do, right? This becomes a, a weapon, right? We, we weaponize Scripture. I want to close with Paul's words at the end of chapter 6. And I'd like you to repeat this with me, if you would, from your, from your home, from your couch. If, you've already, if you're already in bed, <laughs> don't tell anybody. I won't say anything to anybody. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, read with me. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then Paul's blessing for those who agree with this statement. If you agree with that statement, this is for you. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. For they're the true sons of Israel. They're the true sons of God. Father, thank you for, for Paul. And for this <laughs> pretty crazy letter that Paul wrote to the, the, the gatherings there in Galatia. He, he, he got pretty adamant in this letter, and I, I think we need to listen closely to it. Father, we, we, we know the law. It helps us. It helps us know what right is and what is wrong. But when we allow it to be our judge, then we're going backwards. Father, we have, we have faith in the promise, and that promise has a name. The name is Jesus Christ. And in that promise, it's not dependent on us. It's because you so loved us that you gave us your son. 
that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray.